0: Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. My name's Ray. I am your host. This week, I'm joined by Brandon Grissetti. He's the owner of one of my all-time favorite restaurants that I've been to, Pigeon, up in Vancouver. We just had a fantastic experience there uh, when we were there in Vancouver. It was a couple years ago. Uh, We basically went from Hawaii to Vancouver, then to kind of Calgary, Banff, and back home. It was just an awesome experience. It just all kind of came together randomly. It was we went to another restaurant, ate there, didn't have a great meal. So we're still kind of, you know, wound up bouncing out of there early. And Pigeon was kind of one of the two places that was still open that we felt comfortable, you know, showing up to and not being like walking in five minutes before the kitchen closes like an asshole or something. So wound up going there, had a fantastic time. The food was awesome. And then just been kind of in love with the restaurant ever since. And uh, you got Chef Wesley Young, who's the executive chef. Uh, chef Kim Wynn is the sous chef there. It's uh it's just a fantastic restaurant and really loved it. Was you know fortunate enough to to reach out to Brandon and get him on the podcast. And he owns the restaurant. He doesn't, you know, cook, but he's if you've ever wondered what the worst possible restaurant opening in the history of restaurants is, this is gonna be. This is going to be in the in the choices. I mean, it's the worst restaurant opening I've ever heard of just because of everything that happened that was not at all their fault. It wasn't in their control. It's really crazy. We don't really get into it until I think probably almost like an hour into the podcast. This is, might be the longest podcast that we did. We were scheduled, I think, for maybe like an hour and a half or something like that and ran way over. Selfishly, I, I kind of ran over uh, with him. So apologies if he is on a time crunch. But He's done a lot. I mean, it's a crazy story. It's a crazy life that he's lived um, up to this point. Just pigeon, you know, the restaurant basically every time they've had a couple of different executive chefs. You know, the opening, um, which was kind of a disaster with all the PR stuff that happened that wasn't, you know, again, their fault. And just, you know, now he's on to, he still owns the restaurant, still heavily involved, but also is founded from Two, which is like a delivery app. And he's doing things with it that numerous people in the tech sector, tech industry, couldn't even accomplish up to this point. You know, people out of Silicon Valley um, with all their cash and capital and stuff couldn't get it done. Like David Chang tried twice, didn't, didn't get it done. Couldn't get out of, you know, small boroughs and, you know, small sections in New York and Manhattan when he's tried. So super impressive. I mean, we talk all about all that stuff, um, you know, how he got into food, why he opened the restaurant background in tech, Bitcoin, I think at the end, just because he's a tech guy. So it was a question I kind of threw in there, but it's an awesome podcast. It's, it was a really just fun time just to talk with somebody who owns just a restaurant. and It was super awesome to just talk to him and he's super chill and, and uh really interesting story. I mean, the, the salmon fishing boat stuff when he was working on there is, you know, I grew up, you know, on Cape Cod, so it's, you know, there's a, a fishing component and everything and you kind of hear about that stuff and, and then obviously you had, you know, Deadliest Catch kind of, I think it might even still be on TV, but had a peak and is now probably nowhere near the viewership that it once was in it's heyday, but you kind of hear about, you know, people and you wonder why people go on those boats and do those things. And, and he kind of touches on it perfectly. So it's, it's, it's all over the place. Like emotionally, probably there might be a part where you get choked up. There might be a part where you laugh. There might be a part where you wind up being super angry. It's just, it's a really fun podcast. Uh, just, you know, definitely one of my favorites thus far. I mean, I, I love them all that, you know, I've been able to talk to people. Everybody's got something that stands out from each episode that I've done with them. But this is definitely one of kind of my top, you know, favorites, just to being able to, to kind of talk to somebody who is involved in the industry, but also gets kind of where I'm coming from, too, as well and everything. So, but yeah, make sure to check out Pigeon YVR on Instagram. Brandon Gossetti, he's on Instagram, too, as well. Chef Wesley Young is has an Instagram but doesn't really use it. We kind of joke about that. And then Chef Kim Nguyen, uh, they are on Instagram, too, as well. They were on Top Chef Canada. They were a finalist on there. We don't really talk too much about that because I just know that most reality shows – Contestants have to sign pretty much like an NDA, and then they're only allowed to do certain press uh, outlets too, as well. So I didn't really want to go into that, just because I knew there was not much that he was going to be able to talk about and reference. So I think I only asked like maybe one or two questions about it. Uh, I do also want to apologize uh, to—I believe there is a part kind of towards the end where we are talking about Kim, and I think I used the wrong pronoun. Uh, I think I used a she instead of a they. So I do want to make sure that I apologize. To Kim for that, was not intentional. Uh, still getting used to doing the different pronouns and using different pronouns for people. It's just something I haven't had to do a whole lot of. So I was super conscious of it when we were getting to kind of that part of the questions that I had written up. And I still messed up, I think, at one point. So wasn't intentional. I do want to say, you know, apologize to Kim for that. That was not intentional to use the incorrect pronoun there. Uh, without further ado, this is my interview with uh, owner Brandon Grassetti of Pigeon and from two uh, up in Vancouver, Canada. Thanks for, for coming on and doing this. Thankful for everybody who agrees to come on and talk on the podcast. But I was super excited that you said yes, just because Chef Wesley is not active on Instagram at all. <laughs> so I don't think he ever saw my message, probably ever. Um, and then also, it's just Pigeon is just one of, one of if not my favorite restaurant ever. I've only eaten there once. It was when we were in Vancouver is after uh, me and my wife got married in in Maui. And then we went to Vancouver for a few days. and Then we went over to Banff in Calgary and we ate at a place, another restaurant in Vancouver. I'm trying to remember the name. I think it was Burdock and Co. I think was the name of the restaurant and had a uh, disastrous experience. Just the food was not very good. and And basically we were probably like nine o'clock or so. And I, I always have like a list of, you know, restaurants that maybe we didn't have reservations at or something. Just, you know, like other places that I was interested in going. And there was two places open. It was you guys. And then um, the waterfront dining place. Can't remember the name off the top of my head.
1: In Florida, maybe.
0: Yeah, I think that was it. And it was basically like, which one do we go to? And it was just, we decided we're just like, That one looks interesting. Let's go to Pigeon. So we went there. There was like nobody else. There was a couple that was just finishing up when we came in. And I think there was maybe one other group that came in after every, I mean, we didn't get a whole lot of food, but the stuff that we got was just flat out, just amazing. I've never had anything like it. Never had anything since like it that even comes close. So it's still up there. It's, I can't wait to come back to Vancouver because it's, you guys are going to be my first stop, but, but thank you for, for coming on and, and doing this. Really appreciate it.
1: No, my pleasure. Absolutely, and just as a, a thing, Andrea does amazing stuff at Burdock and Co. Um, so I'm just going to say probably just a, a miss of an experience because I never like to throw anybody under the bus. Andrea is is amazing at at, at Burdock and Co. It just uh, probably just a, a weird night, and uh, but fortuitous for us that we got to meet you and uh, and that you guys had a great experience with us. So um, it's kind of awesome.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, you have those experiences sometimes where you go somewhere and it just doesn't gel or whatever. That doesn't mean that that's that's always like that. It it just could be a one off thing. I've had them at some places that I really enjoy every once in a while. You just have kind of a weird experience. It just happens. So so you're, you know, a little different because you're kind of the first restaurant owner that I've had on who doesn't actually cook. You're not a chef owner. You're actually a restaurant owner. So we'll, we'll go all the way back to the beginning. You know, how did you get started with food? Because was it something that you were interested in growing up? I know you have a computer programming IT background originally and all that kind of came to fruition. But growing up, was food something that you were kind of interested in or did it just kind of materialize after the fact?
1: Yeah, as a kid, it was um, it was very different. You know, I was I grew up in a pretty, pretty, pretty poor household. Um, so food was food was just it was there. It was um, sustenance. When I moved back to Vancouver, when I was about 16, I started working in, in restaurants at that point and, uh, you know, worked my way up from dishwasher up to, up to line and, you know, running stations and such. And that's really where a passion really started to kind of blossom at that point. You know, found myself also, uh, you know, jumping around and trying to go to culinary school at that point. And I couldn't raise the money to go to culinary school, which was incredibly expensive at that point. Um, and just, it, it fell by the wayside. I did a little bit of cooking in Europe when I traveled the next year to basically keep myself uh, traveling. Um, so that was one of the things that I loved about it as well. It gave that flexibility to be able to travel and experiences different cultures and, and also work fairly easily and jump into a role very easily. But, you know, then I got into a professional career and, um, found myself doing, you know, algorithmic trading and working for a finance firm and, um, and doing it stuff and, uh, basically programming, you know, my life turned into this and this is around, you know, this is the, the heyday of that was from, you know, 2000 to, uh, about 2010, 2011, me and my wife, we had the stock market collapse that happened during that time. It wiped us out almost completely completely. Um, we were doing really, really well. And it just made me look at everything again. My existence prior to that for the last like five, six years was watching scents fly through the air and go through wires and trying to find my best way to, you know, steal a scent off of a, off a trade. It really felt like I'm like, yeah, we were doing well. And there was a lot of security in that for sure. It just felt disingenuous. It didn't feel real. And so, you know, we'd always been passionate about food. And one of the things that the, the actual, not very many people know this, but me and my wife, actually, the, the original thing that we were going to do was a coffee shop and a Korean style mi shop. And my wife's Korean, you know, came over here when she was one. Uh, She was in finance as well with me. And we were going to do a coffee shop that was very much so partnered with kind of giving back. So uh, raising funds for disadvantaged girls all over the world, kind of like a room to read and doing some some work with room to read, which is about education of women in third world countries. And that was the plan. Um, And then I met Makoto Ono uh, through a friend who I had gone to school with. And Makoto, it was a a friend, Chantal Nochez, that went to Dubrow with him. um, And the same school that I wanted to go to when I was trying to raise the money to go to school, we would have been in the same class, which is kind of funny and weird at the same time, going back at that point, 15 years. Um, met Makoto and then kind of fell in love with his food. And um, Makoto worked with Liberty Private Works in Hong Kong for quite some time. Uh, he was on uh, Asia's Top 50. He's uh, the San Pellegrino list. And just a really talented, humble, smart guy, really brought together kind of in some ways the ethos of what we stand for now, but which is bringing together like proper technique, like French technique with beautiful Asian flavors. Uh, at that point in time, it was very much so uh, Japanese and French. And that was the uh, that was the way that it was played. Uh, Makoto started out with Edohai in Winnipeg, which was one of the first sushi places in Winnipeg back in the, I believe the 70s, uh, his dad's place. He started working with his dad. And then that's kind of how things went from there. He came out of a restaurant family. So we met, fell in love with his food. And I was like, there goes that bong coffee idea. And then we found ourselves trying to find, you know, what we were looking for originally was like, You know, a thousand square feet, small little thing on a high street. We ended up opening Pigeon in Gastown and we needed a bigger space. And from my perspective, it was like finding something that that made a lot of sense, that we would have some lasting power in a place like Vancouver where rents skyrocket so quickly and restaurants aren't about being busy. It's about whether or not they can afford all of the expenses of rent. And I didn't want to just be a flash in the pan. So, So we found ourselves in Gastown, which is like we're right in between two kind of cultural hubs where we have like Gastown, which is fairly touristy, um, but the oldest part of the city. And then Chinatown, which is also part of the oldest city. And we're right smack dab in the middle on kind of what was considered a thoroughfare. You know, to be honest, whenever I get fucking shit-faced, it was walking along uh, basically Water Street going into like... At that time, I'd say we were in like a really high point in Vancouver getting into solidifying its reputation in cocktails and also independent dining uh, and you'd walk along Water Street and then you'd walk up Carroll and you'd hit like 12 places, grab a bite here, grab a cocktail there, and then walk in through Chinatown and you know finish up your trip at um, uh, you know, Bao Bay or Kiefer in somewhat of a blackout state by that point in time. But that was always the Friday, Saturday or whatever. And so we were basically right in the middle of that and wanted to be a part of that kind of eating and drinking culture of uh, small bites and, and cocktails. So that's kind of, I guess that's the genesis. You know, it started out in this weird altruistic way of trying to get back to something tangible, something getting away from a corporate kind of lifestyle to something that I could touch and taste and smell, a reconnection with people and the things that matter. And also doing so within a community that I really cared about and have some long, long-term long connections here from well back in my past. So it's a, it was a long road, but it got us to see here.
0: Going backward for a second, when you first started out kind of cooking in kitchens, did you just start out on the line or did you start like kind of most people like dishwasher, then work your way up to line cooker?
1: Yeah, I was dish I I started out in dish as a KP, I guess, if we're gonna be uh, uh proper. Yeah, I just crushed it. Like it was uh, Earls on Robson, which was a pretty large dining room at that point. Uh, normally it was a two-person dish, fit. I think I after my first weekend it turned back into a one-person dish. It was I was fast and young and hungry and, and then I ended up, you know, going to salads and uh like at that point they don't even they didn't have stations like guard. It was like you're on the salad bowls. Yeah. And then working my way up in the pans and meats. And, you know, I was still going to high school at the time. Uh, I was living on my own. I was like, I had moved back from Ontario and came back to Vancouver, kind of, uh, anyway, long story, I ended up um, working pretty much to pay my rent while I was going to school. And so I was working 30, 40 hours a week while going to high school and uh, trying to put, you know, food in my mouth and pay the rent. Yeah. work my way up and, you know, it's. I, I, there was a crossover moment where you know I wanted to be really serious about cooking, and that's, that was when I wanted to go to, to Brul. Yeah, it just didn't work out that way. and it's, it's weird how everything, you know, literally 15, 20 years later, kind of go full circle as to getting back to that passion of the things that really make you happy. And uh, even though Earls was a, you know, what I would say is one of these kind of larger chains. You know, I, I always would, we kind of poo poo the the larger chains here and it's different than the U S like there's like this medium tier, which is kind of independent, but still chainy, you know, the execution is good. And some of the products are really good. And, uh, like we have cactus club and Earl's and a few of these, I used to go, especially when we opened pigeon, I was just like, oh, this is awful. And now I look at it in retrospect. I'm like, man, they have an amazing training program. They have an amazing, uh, they take kids that know nothing about cooking. And turn them into pretty decent people, and very well organized and and mathematically are brilliant about the way that they run food costs. So now I have this weird kind of bit of respect for it, but it's also you know now those guys that are running test kitchens come to places like Pigeon or Burdock and Co to to basically look at what's new uh, to inspire them maybe six months down the road. So we come out with a dish, you know six months later a bastardization of it of some sort probably comes out on their menu on 27 restaurants across the country. Uh, But it's also flattering and interesting and and kind of a, a symbiotic relationship.
0: Knowing what you know now about restaurants and having owned one, do you think looking back on it, if you did go to culinary school, like you would have made it as like a big time chef or something like that? Or do you just go, it's such kind of like a crapshoot sometimes. And there's, you know, obviously there's a little bit of luck involved too. And on top of talent, natural talent, and then how much you can take that natural talent and shape it and form it and everything through experiences. Do you think you would have been successful that way too? Or I mean, cause you're, you know, pretty much a self-made
1: guy. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because this when I was wanting to go to the bro, it was previous to the days of like the Food Network crap, right? And I think some of that has changed the way that we look at food and what we think it takes to be good at things. Like a lot of things are shortcutted now and, and don't come from proper training. Um, I think, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I think what's interesting about what I see is good chefs now are really, it's a dichotomy. The skills that are necessary to be good chefs and people that are like, let's say chef run and owned restaurants is not just about cooking delicious food. That's like, that's like this. It's, it's really about, are you a good leader? Do people want to work with you? You know, the days of screaming and yelling and throwing shit are done. Do you inspire people to work with you? Are you soft and hard at the right times? Are you a counselor? Like that's a big aspect of work in the kitchen. You know, we take a lot of people from various, various difficulties in their lives and smush together all these crazy ass people and try to make something beautiful and organized. So you're a counselor, you're a janitor, you do jump into dish all the time. You are a mathematician, you are a plumber, you are all of these things. And then like to your point early where Wes isn't really on Instagram and all that stuff is, is now you have to then over and above having all those skills and try to keep all these things going. And, and it's always something's popping out and you got to pull it back in, be good at Instagram and be good at social media and be good and in front of a camera, be good in interviews. And that is like, that's a lot of skills to ask in one person. And usually, you know, when you look at these celeb chefs or some of these restaurants, The biggest aspect is, is really about having that leadership ability and being able to delegate and and being able to trust people and build good teams. And then they then have the time and the resources to work on all that other stuff, like the Instagram, the social media, all that stuff. Those that start with that Instagram, social media stuff usually don't have any of the other things, the fundamental aspects that have created a good, a good chef. And have shortcutted somewhere, or just want to be fucking famous via Food Network. And, and, and I, I'm not taking anything away from that. Our, our, our sous chef right now, Kim, there is in uh, Top Chef right now. So it's like, so I don't take away from that because I think it has its place. It's a very odd world that we're in. Where do I think I would be successful? Or not maybe. I think if you push hard enough in anything, and you put your head down, and realize that you don't know everything, and you surround yourself with good people. You're always going to have uh, success, but like you literally have to just keep pushing and work your ass off in anything if you want to be successful.
0: How did you wind up in computer programming? Was that something that like you just kind of fell into? I mean, with, with all that stuff, it's kind of, you know, with computer programming or day trading or something like that, at least kind of back in the day, it always seemed like that was something that people purposefully got into. But you, it's, for you, it kind of seems like maybe you fell into it.
1: Uh, so when I got rejected on DeBrol and I didn't have the cash to go to DeBrol, you know, back up one second. My grandfather, um, who I was very close with, had left me some money for a post-secondary education. He passed away when I was 17, right around the time I was finishing high school and, and wanting, or 18 rather. And I was finishing high school and wanted to go, go to DeBrol. My dad and my aunts at that point in time said that that wasn't what he intended when he left you money. And they split it up amongst themselves. That was one of those weird wake up moments as a young person kind of going, wow, this is the shit sucks. And I jumped on a fishing boat and I had a scholarship to go to uh, university and just never really wasn't my jam. And so I found myself going and uh, jumping on a fishing boat. And I fished for like four years um, and there was good times and bad times. I was a long liner, um, salmon fishing as well. Hard job. I thought I was going to die probably. There's about eight instances where I was just like, fuck, I can't believe I'm alive in survival suit in a storm on a 40 foot wooden trawler in the middle of nowhere. You know, there was this re education program that was introduced in the late 90s in British Columbia that was to re educate stupid people like me, one of which was uh, accredited schooling for programming. And I was like, these computers, they're going to be a big thing. I'm going to go learn the computes. So I, um, I went and it was honestly like, I knew nothing. I had, you know, some IRC stuff. I had a Commodore 64 when I was a kid, I made things sprint around. I would write 10,000 lines of code from a book to make a sprint, like a little thing, jump across the screen. I played Load Runner a lot. I was very good at Nintendo, a little bit of Doom 64. And through a dart at the board, it was like, you want to do network engineering? Or you want to do programming? And I was like, programming sounds the right thing. And went through school, did a two-year quick college go. First interview out was at a brokerage firm, um, like a financial firm. Took the job, you know, squandered probably three years of not knowing what the fuck I was doing. Uh, Had some good mentorship that came in and worked with uh, some of the strongest people I've ever worked with on the IT side. And we built some amazing stuff. And many of the people that worked with and for me thereafter are powering the internet now. Like, you know, we built structures and patterns that now make Facebook work and Twitter and uh, Amazon. Like it's uh, some of the code that we we made back in the day are, it's everywhere. And um, so that was a cool legacy that came out of that. But yeah, that was the arc on that and, you know, go from stupid fishermen to, um, to it. And also don't get me wrong. Fishing is still one of those things. I jumped on a boat five years after I was programming just to feel the buzz again. Like I was, I was, my hands were weak and they were like typing hands and my body was like, you know, I used to be built of muscle when I was a fisherman. And then I was like five years programming I took my holiday one year, which was like two weeks holiday or two weeks uh, vacation, and jumped on a boat with an old friend of mine just to feel that rush Ooh. again, like that amazing rush of being on a boat, being in the middle of the ocean, throwing around 200-pound halibut and feeling that exhilaration, which was incredible. But uh, also, I was so out of shape. So I I love fishing. So when I say stupid fisherman, don't, no one take offense to this. It was... It was me as a kid trying to find my way into the world of you know what I, you know there was one time where I almost you know a boat almost went down. Uh, we had a boat that was next to us that got its wheelhouse knocked back, and we were all fighting uh, waves like it was a halibut opening, and everyone goes out and then have rushes back as fast as possible because the first boat that lands is selling the halibut at like whatever, let's call it was five dollars a pound. The last boat that arrives is selling it at a buck. So you need to get your ass back to shore as quick as possible. And this one boat had its wheelhouse knocked back, and we were just bucking this huge, it wasn't a bad storm, but we were bucking this massive kind of wall of um, swell. And uh, this boat was built with a bit of a tight uh, steel kind of front, and it didn't lift well, it just kind of cut. And anyway, they cut, they knocked off the wheelhouse, water got into the engine, and then they were just sitting there in the swell. So you had these big swells like this. And they went, rather than going this way, they were taking it from the sides. Yeah. Taking it from the sides. And there was nothing anyone could do. There was like 50 boats out. None of us could turn to go and help. And so uh, Coast Guard came in and helped them out and got the boat back. And uh, I've had way worse than that, but it was, it was the following, it was like a week later and that same boat went out and went around the Cape and a bunch of people died on that boat, uh, including the captain. And a couple young kids, I've been close a few times where it really scared the shit out of me. And, you know, you're 21, whatever years old, you, you feel like you're invincible. I've been in storms where you are climbing 10 stories in the dark and going up like this. Yeah. And you just, you, you think you're going to die being weightless on the way down, like completely weightless. And that moment when that boat went out and did it again, I was a little bit older and I'd been through a few of those experiences. And it scared me so much that I was like, I need to do something different. It's still, there was good money and stuff like that in it, but it was just, uh, it wasn't worth my life. And uh, it was a wake up call for me. So
0: is part of the appeal to that, you know, with, you know, you have the the deadliest catch program. And then I grew up out East, I grew up on Cape Cod, so fishing village and, and stuff like that. And, you know, everybody always references, you know, Gloucester and perfect storm and all that stuff. But I mean, there's been numerous fishing boats that, that have gone down and everything is part of that just the thrill of just being on kind of like I mean you're on basically an island so to speak but you're just on the edge of the world kind of is that is that what that kind of is
1: it is it's amazing there's like like you you're killing yourself with very little sleep like the most I've ever done was I think 48 hours on deck during a halibut go that we were just in it and we had a hold and we we're just filling it and filling it we just kept going and like no sleep just keep going and then run back. And that stuff. But then there's these moments like just like that are like, you could be the richest person on the planet. And you'll never experience that. Like those are things that you can't buy. And I remember we were in the uh, Haida Gwaii area. At the time, it was called the Queen Charlotte's, and, and it's, you know, an island group off of the North Coast before Alaska, kind of uh, near Prince Rupert. And there's the, the west side of the island. And we got pushed in. Hardcore storm pushed in and you know we had this experience with dolphins and this is too long of a story so I'll just make it really quick on the cool side of it but the next morning you know we've got breakers everywhere and we found our way into a, a cove and and threw down anchor and woke up in this amazing area surrounded by stuff where you're looking at it and you're just like I bet you there's been like maybe 50 people that have seen this and and it was just it was stunning and then that day, we're like, we need to get home. Boats full. We need to get the hell out of here. Let's start trucking down to um, uh, Port Hardy. And it's a long go. So we just kind of, you know, set it and go. You know, the captain goes to bed. And I was, it was just me and the captain on this boat. It's a little 42 foot uh, Detroit diesel. That's not that big, man. Dude, these are the boats I worked on. The biggest I worked on, I think, was like 54. The Ocean Twilight. This was the Dora May 2, if I remember correctly, this boat. And we, we, we ended up going and he was like, just pointed at the waypoint. And, you know, at that point we had GPS and stuff. And I pointed this waypoint and it's the middle of the night. And he, he's just like, let it float. Turn off the engine. And when you're a fisherman, usually the engine never stops. Like you're going somewhere and it's always clack, 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 clack. If it's a Caterpillar engine, it's like clack, 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 clack. Detroit Diesel has its own noise as well. And it's always a hum. And it's never quiet like a sailboat, right? It's never like that. And so it's a rarity where you just say, let it float. You're not going to hit anything and just let it float. And I turn off the engine, go out onto the deck and uh, look up at the sky, clear night, perfect night, like amazing. You can see every star, like you can see the Milky Way. Like it was the first, like I've seen it before fishing, but it was like, it's actually it, for, for it to be quiet for me to lay down on, on the hatch and like kind of look up. And it was also a night where it was the right time of year and everything going on where there was phosphorescence everywhere. So the whole wake of the boat was just green. And you had this beautiful phosphorescence that went on for like what would seem like a kilometers, a couple, couple miles, basically out into the back of the boat. I heard this big and um, I thought it was like a seal, but I'm like, we're way too, way too far out for a seal. And I don't know what type of whale it was, but this, thing came right up next to the boat. Huge, like phosphorescence. Like it looked like a submarine. Kind of did one of these, looked up at me. I tried to reach it, couldn't get down far enough. And then, you know, we kind of hung out there for like five minutes, just kind of staring at each other. And then it took off and I was just like, fuck, this is why. It's stuff like that. And then there's the adrenaline, there's the money, there's the drunken camaraderie, there's the danger, there's the idea of being something goes wrong in the middle of the ocean, you have to fix it. It's not like you can like call up a repairman and get stuff. We've, we've taken towels together to create a, uh, to create a belt, uh, on an engine before because we burned through six belts because there was an oil leak and there's shit that you, you, there's nothing you can do. You can call the coast guard, but like when you're in it, that's not going to really help you. And so there's something about that, that total independence and that beauty and that rush, and that money, and uh, that freedom. Like uh, when I was when I was 19, I worked my ass off for six to eight months, and I took four months off and traveled through Europe. You know, really kind of formed myself. It, it created a lot of opportunities that I think made it special. So I think to me, that's the thing about fishing is those, I don't know, it's, there's something weird. You can read all the books you want about it, but it's like getting out there and being on your own and and working hard as well. I always look at, when I went and whenever I look at a hard time in my life, and I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted. I did a 90 hour week in the restaurant, and you know, haven't slept that much. Haven't seen my kids. Haven't even you know chatted with my wife at all to touch base. I always look back to like, yeah, you remember that time when you're, you did 52 hours or 48 hours on deck, and then you almost died in that storm. And it's just like shit, Everything else looks easy, relatively speaking.
0: It's a Good way to look at it.
1: Yeah, and I always, it was funny, when I was young, I was like, if I have kids and they're turning into spoiled bastards, I'm just going to throw them on a boat and make them make them see what how difficult life can be and beautiful at the same time, but how hard you can work and how hard some people work on this planet. And it gives you some perspective. And then you go to third world countries, it gives you a little bit more perspective as to how hard people have to work to get so little. And so it was, for me, it was a big wake up. And uh and truly gave me some perspective as to what it takes to work hard on things. And um, and as you said, going back to it, like do you think you'd be a good chef if if you did it? It's just like, well, yeah, you just gotta put the hours in, you just gotta work and be dedicated. There's a creative aspects like that, but you know, in life, it's put your head down and earn it. And uh and sometimes there's there are shortcuts if you're a little bit smarter and maybe a little bit more creative and a little bit of luck in absence of those things. It's putting your head down. And me, I've never been, never been the smartest and I've never been uh, the most creative. But where I lack in any type of skill or, 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 or smarts, uh, I just work harder than everybody else. That's the biggest thing. And I think we're, we've lost a little, not to in my generation, but it's uh, not to be like that. It's like, I think there's something, the ability to have access to so much information in our fingertips in every moment we forget that it takes a lot of hours to make shit good and to be, you know, like the 10,000 hour rule to become an expert in something. It does take 10,000 hours. It's a lot of work to get good and smart. I've totally taken this podcast that you talk about, and I'm, I'm talking about being on a boat in the middle of the Pacific.
0: No, this is, that's the point because, it, you know, everybody's, you know, you talk to people and they're like, oh, my story is not interesting. And it's like, well, it's not interesting to you because you've lived it. But other people, when they hear it, it's super interesting. Where did you go in Europe when you went through?
1: Uh, that first trip was, oh, fuck, it was a stupid idea. I started in Amsterdam and I was a young kid. I was, I think, uh, the first trip was 18 or 19 or something. I didn't leave the fucking hostel for like two weeks. Like I just, every time I was like, okay, I'm getting, oh, well, I, I left the hostel. I didn't leave that area of Amsterdam for two weeks because I just wasn't motivated to do so and I and I got some good friends that I met that are from all over the world and it was like this really kind of cool experience it's my first hostel experience and I I just every day I get down there we do like some kind of shitty breakfast that was with the hostel like the egg and like a crumpet and you know whatever (laughs) and then suddenly like hey Brandon let's go smoke a joint I was like fuck I'm not getting on that train now I cuz I had the Euro rail and all that stuff and I was like I'm going to see all of Europe and and I burnt like through half of my dough in Amsterdam. Uh, next stop was Bruges and I ended up actually working in Bruges for a little bit because I was like holy shit I burnt through a lot of money. Europe is a lot at that point we had a really bad exchange rate and it was like man I'm burning through all my cash really quickly. Uh, so I ended up working in a hotel slash hostel in, um, in Bruges. Uh, and that's where I ended up doing some cooking and I actually did some handiwork and stuff like that. Uh, and met some great people while I was there as well. It was really, really neat. And, um, every time I watch in Bruges, I'm just like, it it wasn't that bad. It's a pretty, pretty, it's a fucking, (laughs) how did it cry? Anyway, uh, (laughs) it's a fucking fairy tale. It's a fucking amazing fucking place.
0: It's a great movie, too. Uh, if, if you haven't seen it, you're listening to this. It's, it's Colin Farrell. And um, what's the other guy's name? He's in everything. He's, he's one of those guys who you, you, you forget his name. But as soon as you see his face, you're like, oh, yeah, that guy.
1: He's in everything. He was in, like, Harry Potter. And, uh, and then there's Ralph Fiennes. That's the one I was just saying. Uh, he's the one that's like, it's a fucking fairy tale. How can he not fucking, like, Bruges? It's fucking amazing. The fucking lights and the fucking bell tower. And uh, yeah, and he's, uh, yeah, it was an amazing, uh, anyway, so in Bruges and then, um, went off to Paris, went off to, um, Greece, um, Italy, uh, started to run out of money. So started to head East, uh, went to, uh, Prague, Budapest, uh, uh, Budapest, I got ripped off like, Holy cow. Yeah. I got rolled for like everything I had in a tourist trap, which was crazy. But anyway, that's another story. You can tell it if you want. I was with a couple guys from the US. We had met in Prague and we actually had a really good time in Prague together. And they were like, I forget what university they were going to, but they just finished university or were going to university or whatever it was. And actually, we met in Paris and then we ended up going to Prague together or going to Budapest together, rather. And then um, we're walking down the main thoroughfare of Budapest, um, like the, the modern side. I forget which one's which, Pest or Buddha. You know, I'm a fairly savvy guy, but I wasn't as savvy, obviously, as I am now as a traveler, but I was still a kid. And these two absolutely stunning women come up to us and say, hey, we know, you know, and we started chatting with the, the three three American guys and myself. I don't think I was much of a looker at the time. I think I had like long uh, whatever. And I looked poor as hell. These guys looked pretty well put together. So I got no attention. And we, they said, hey, we know this bar. Let's go to this bar and uh, let's hang out. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, spidey senses are popping up. Uh, we end up going to the bar. I order what in during that time was a beer that would be, I forget what their currency was at the time. Uh, it wasn't Kroner. But anyway, in total, should cost about 25 cents, right? And they order, the gentleman order, and then the two ladies order. And as soon as the order goes and the drinks at the table, the two ladies leave, walk out the door, a bouncer, the owner, and the manager ask everybody in the entire restaurant to leave. And they pull down the blinds and lock the door and then present us with the bill. And the bill was like, I can't remember, but it was something insane, like $10,000 or something in US, like US or Canadian. And they extorted us for three hours to the point where... Yeah. I, uh, at one point I, I found myself, you know, they allowed us to still smoke in the, in the restaurant. And, uh, I took the ashtray and threw it at their back bar. I was like, if you guys are going to extort us, I'm going to, I'm going to make this, make this expensive for you and, uh, smashed a bunch of bottles and it was a mirror back bar and it was like, fuck you guys. And then this big bouncer guy just comes over and lays a couple into me an hour and a half later. I'm like, you know, somewhat like fucked up at that point from getting punched and a little bit punch drunk. And I'm like, guys, can I just, okay, we're fine. Can I have a, a cigarette again? <laughs> fucking throw it again. <laughs> and then I think we got out of there for about 600 US. Oh, you
0: got it down for 10 grand to 600 bucks.
1: Which is a huge amount of the money back then, right? I don't think, at that point, I don't think Hungary was part of the, the, uh, the EU. Um, uh, but anyway, it was just one of those fucked up stories. And then the next day, we're just like we're getting the hell out of here. We're going back to. Uh, we had all been to Prague before, and we're like, we're going back to Prague. That's a nice place. And then on the way, we we jumped a uh, tube, and we didn't pay for it. And then two of the two of the Americans got caught. One the one American ran with me. Two of them got caught for not paying their ticket and had to bribe the the police on the way. And it was just like, what else can go wrong in this place? And uh yeah, so that was that story. Sorry. Once again, good cooking, good good cooking chat here.
0: No, I think I think Buddha is the higher one and I think pest is lower, but I could be having also it's it's fifty-fifty chance that I have that right. So just look it up, maybe. Have you been back to any of those places since?
1: I went back to Prague, like yeah, I went back to Prague with friends from the UK years later. And actually there was this beautiful, like cool hostel on the outskirts. And I think all of us we were a little bit older at that point and we kind of had our shit together. I was trying in some weird way to relive something that existed in a point in time. And like, let's call it 1999 and in, in Prague that I was trying to relive in like 2005. So different. It was like the difference of the EU and um, the cost of living and um, the whole, the whole place was just very different and uh, still loved it. And still beautiful. Like, amazing Gothic city. But yeah, no, I've traveled a few times and it's very different. Like now traveling, uh, you know, it's always been with my wife and now we have two two kids. And I look at traveling very differently now. Like it's, um, yeah, like I've taken, take my wife and her family through Italy and, and through Croatia and, uh, and it's, uh, I now I'm just like, is this going to be, I, when I think about the next big trip with the kids, it's like, is this going to be educational? It's not going to be the Egypt that you went to when you were 21. You know, are we going to jump into a Land Rover and go into the black and white desert for like a week with no, if it runs out of gas or something happens, my two children are going to die in the middle of the desert. This is a shit you can't do anymore. So I look at traveling very differently now. But um, And also, to be honest with you, I hate that this is a horrible thing to say about restaurants, but I have, short of going to California, I haven't been able to travel in nine years because I'm tied to this place pretty hard and it's very difficult there's always something coming up where you're like okay I'm going to book this time this is the time that you're going to have and then you're like down a per- especially when it's a small restaurant you lose a person like you are losing an arm and you need to jump in with another arm to fix that issue so I haven't had the luxury of doing much travel for the last few years but aside from like going to doing work functions like we went to London uh to work with pigeon london on a, a collab uh the year before they got their michelin star i think they got the michelin star because we did a collab with them but but us um Let's take credit for that one yeah i'm just gonna fucking stole well, they stole my name so at the very least i have to take credit
0: so okay yeah i was wondering about that whose name came first so you guys opened first then
1: it was really interesting like i, I when i when i looked up pigeon because pigeon means two different languages or multiple languages coming together to form a new language. Uh, when I was looking up Pidgin and I like, you know, did the research and I'm like, yeah, there's Pidgin. There was a few different... There was an instant messenger platform, like a messaging platform for Pidgin on the IT side. Uh, there was obviously Pidgin languages, like the probably the most predominant being Pidgin Nigerian, uh, and then followed by like Hawaiian and, and a few other Pidgin languages that are still out there in the world. And aside from that, there was no Pidgin restaurant on the planet and then a year later after we opened it was like holy shit boom there was one in singapore there was one there was one briefly i think in new orleans there was one obviously in london that's done very well but they they just started popping up everywhere and the one i think it, it was it was either I, I believe it was singapore uh was a direct ripoff of us like 100% like food styling pictures like even logo was similar and i was like oh i just want to do a I don't have time to, to do a cease and desist in Singapore, but, uh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, there was a few that opened. we were the first. though. So. yeah.
0: So you guys opened, it was 2013, right? Mm-hmm. You live probably, you know, a lifetime full of events before that. Then you decide to get in the restaurant industry going backwards, you know, doing the coffee shop, tasting Makoto Ono's food, who I think he's, is he still at, is it Mac and Ming?
1: Yeah. He owns, uh, and operates Mac and Ming. Yeah. So him and his, him and his partner yeah it's uh it's awesome. he's still doing great food,
0: so he's over there now, but originally started at Pigeon and you guys opened it. The reception was probably the worst reception that you could get for opening a restaurant. would you say I don't know what
1: you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> um it was it was yeah it was uh yeah it was that was
0: you're I think your wife was pregnant right around the time that you guys are opening and you're opening in this area that people wanted it to be like affordable housing and didn't understand why there was a restaurant there, even though you did all this community outreach before you guys opened to basically ingratiate and like just immerse yourselves in the surrounding community, you still had like daily protests and people were just super angry
1: right yeah, we got protested nine months in a row every day it was one of the like literally, probably one of the most sustained protests in modern history in one location. Like it was just fucked. And the weird side of it is, is that it, it basically. So you know, I'll pull back a little bit. This this area that we're in, is in between Gastown, Chinatown, collectively, in a lot of ways, is called the Downtown East Side, and it is a very complicated place. You have a, a huge amount of concentration of vulnerable people. Uh, you have addictions, you have mental health issues, and it's it's all kind of chock-a-blocked into one area. And many of the policies that we see that have failed across the world around ghettoization, we just continue to keep doing in in this city. And it's asinine. And in fact, we're doubling down on it during COVID. Uh, the province has bought like, uh, God, four or five different buildings and is building a couple more uh, in this neighborhood and concentrating uh, more vulnerable people. And that said, there's a lot of services around that, around, you know, detox and, or I wouldn't even say detox, but I would say uh, around uh, safe injection sites, um, et cetera. But there's an advocacy aspect of this in the neighborhood, which is, you know, used as a blanket statement of something that's a complicated issue around gentrification, which is, is around the world is a complicated issue. They, through that in the context of saying okay there's a, a, a decent restaurant opening in a neighborhood that has a lot of uh, problems the interesting part of it is like 99% of the things that it was we agreed on just about everything going on but it was it was a blanket statement and whenever you know you see something like this the first thing you're just like am i wrong am i doing the right thing can i and, and will i be and am i a A part of a community that you care about and want to see flourish for everyone, not just the gentrification aspect of it or or just the poverty pimping on the other side. Something in the middle that creates a society that uh, allows all of us to lift one another up and the advocates. We're using it. It was mostly political, so there was what what was being called the local area planning process, which was basically a planning and zoning for uh, a large swath of land, including us, and then right from us and east for about eight nine blocks, actually more than that, probably ten in total, probably thirty square blocks. And they were using us as this linchpin and this discussion and flare point to influence that process. So we were just kind of like caught up in something that had been brewing for quite some time and used as an excuse. Now that said, those are the architects of, of the protests, right? Now you have architects who are trying to do X, Y, and Z politically, and then they take a shit ton of fucking vulnerable people and throw them into the fray and say, this guy is why everything is fucked up in your world. And I turned into my name turned to mud. It was awful. And it was really fucking brutal. Like it was one of those things where you'd have, you know, you'd have people that were against you that were like, honestly, people that I've known for years that didn't quite understand the complexity of everything going on, um, that are asking me like, holy shit, like, what are you doing? And then you have on the other side, you have people that are turning into uh, you know, trying to trumpet your cause and saying, fuck all those homeless people and addicted people, you know, gentrify, gentrify the whole fucking neighborhood. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I don't want you as a friend. And where the fuck are you? We're, we've been aligned for 20 years from a, from a philosophy perspective about who we are. And it was complicated. It was gross. It was dirty. There was so many bad things that happened during that time. There was death threats my wife being followed to her car pregnant for fuck's sakes just all the tropes were being thrown at me it was it was awful it was a horrible experience and and i think the thing that the thing that's the worst about it is the only people that really suffered out of this yes my business took years to recover as a result and my reputation in many ways i suppose but the thing that's the worst out of it is like The fucking neighborhood is 12 times worse than it ever was since then because it scared the shit out of everyone about any type of even even wading in against these people or having a differing of opinion than the advocacy groups that were archetyping the whole thing. And as a result, the only people that have suffered have been the people in the neighborhood that had these people representing them as a voice that were just fucking stupid shit. And now, in some ways, hold more power than they ever did. They, they're on council, like city council. They have moved up in power bureaucratically. And this neighborhood is way worse, way sadder than I've ever seen. More young. Like I'm, I'm seeing. It used to just be a bunch of old timers in their, you know, forties to seventies sitting there smashing heroin and doing crack and stuff like that. But like in a weird wonderful, symbiotic kind of way. And there was, yeah, there was some sadness and bad things. But now it's just like, it's young kids coming just completely messed out. No no respect for anything. It's just really turned into something really sad. And I just wish, that's the thing that upsets me, is like, if I sat there and, and got my ass handed to me for a year or two years of my business, let's say a year of protest, and then two to three years to recover thereafter... I wish it was for something. Like if it meant that more people were housed or more people were helped or more people found a way out of this or a way through this and that advocacy work actually resulted in better outcomes for these people. Fuck yeah. Close 27 pigeons or protest 27 pigeons if it meant that it actually helped people, but it's done exactly the opposite and it's created an us and them type of mentality in many ways, what you see in a polarization of our world these days, where people can't come to medium ground and look at each other in a way that is respectful to come to a better outcome for everyone with a little bit of compromise on both sides. Like you see it in the States, you see it here as well. You see it in in just this complete polarization of the world of just people not being able to look at each other and find commonality and empathy versus very easy to find differences and those differences are now black and white versus the world to make things better is incredibly gray. And we have to find ways to make those make those things better. So anyway, long ramble. Yeah, ass-handed, long time. Took years to recover, destroyed uh, relationships. Uh, you know, I I lost a whole kitchen crew all at once and many parts and result to that um, and had to rebuild the whole restaurant. It was... It's been tough. It's been tough. And in many ways, I just, you know, it's funny. I, I took the lead on this and put myself out front. Like, this was always a chef driven restaurant. I was just supposed to be in the background and make shit happen on the floor. And it was always going to be about Makoto and, and, and what happened in the, in the back. And then when this started, it was like, okay, I'm not asking anybody else to do this. Like, this is just stupid. I've got to take this on the chin and I've got to defend my existence. Uh, which it was incredibly complicated. Then we ended up, uh, as a result, uh, you know, it's funny. Me and my wife were talking about this a couple of years ago, where it was like, you know what, we should have done in retrospect. If I had been the one to take it, that protest would have lasted a week. Because if an immigrant story of my wife had, uh, you know, coming from Korea and being nine months pregnant, opening a restaurant in the downtown East Side, if people are going to fight that, I don't think that would have gotten garnered much empathy. But I stupidly said, no, 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 I'll take this on the chin. And, you know, white cis male sitting out there. And it's like, fuck, there we are. All the I'm the boogeyman. And um, fuck, it was, I don't know. Like I said, I wish it had done what it was supposed to have done and helped people. And it didn't. I've learned a lot since then. And, and in many ways, realized that this fight in many ways is not on the ground. It's really about changing politics and changing the way that people we've just spent trillions of dollars through COVID and we've lost more people in the downtown East side to fentanyl overdose than COVID 10 times over. And it's just like, where the fuck are your priorities? You mobilize trillions or billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to help a bunch of people and you can't help your most vulnerable. Generally speaking in this neighborhood, it's, you know, Vancouver sits at about two to 3% indigenous population. Um, in, in the downtown East side, we're sitting at like 25, to, I think we've crossed 30 now. And it's just like, it's just a concentration of, of vulnerable people that need help. And, and it's from all over the country that come into, into this area. And we just say, go there and die. And it's just fucked. And it, and it is a political issue. It's a political will issue and it has nothing to do with gentrification, it has nothing to do with housing, and has nothing to do with addiction, it has everything to do with trauma and, and issues of mental health that have happened either when they were, young or something that's happened at some point in time in their life that has created this thing that just sucks you into this black hole, of this neighborhood sometimes. And it's hard to look up, but anyway, yeah, that was, that was the opening. It was awesome. I found my life.
0: Despite all that you guys did, I think uh, it was like a year later, it was right around the time uh, uh, Makoto left. And basically he left just because the protests, like, like you said, they just kind of sucked the life out of everybody on, on your side, but you guys were named like, you know, number five on en route's, 10 Best New Restaurants list in 2014. And then did that, you know, when that kind of came out, did that help soften any of the protests or were the protests kind of wrapped up by then?
1: So it was fucking interesting. So 2013, En Route came out that year, October. I think it was like, I want to say like October 24th. We were still being protested every day at that point. And I remember it because the Tuesday, that Tuesday prior to that, Uh, to that announcement, I was on the floor. It was just me and a bartender and I think I had two or three in the kitchen. And we served three guests that day. There was 21 protesters outside. So you have to understand that this was like walking walking through a strike line, right? They would yell at you. They would intimidate you. They would scream at you. And then every day I was being goaded to like do something wrong while I was on camera, like, you know, out of context, kind of scream at me or, and then make me, you know, Try and get a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Like do a little headbutt off camera and then watch me react by, you know, throwing a punch and knocking the fuck out of four people. Yeah. So it was that Tuesday. And then the next day, yeah, with two guests the all night, more protests outside than we had people inside throughout the whole evening fourth or fifth and fifth. And then the next day, the book is full. And then the next day the book is full for basically a year. We had this, this, but we had this weird thing where we were like, we knew this was important to new restaurants. Like on Route is kind of the thing. We don't have Michelin up here, right? And like On Route is like just for new restaurants, just their first year. And if you, we were like, if we don't get on this fucking list, and I was never a person that ingratiated to reviewers and press. I just, I always think there's a weird part of me that thinks that you earn this and if people don't get it and you're not good, maybe you don't deserve it. And I always thought we would get by the merit and some part is stupid in some ways. You know, it is a combination of, of really dealing with people's egos to make sure that everything is great when they come in and, and that kind of stuff. And I was just like, no, no, no. I, I know who that reviewer is. Treat her the way that we would treat anyone else here, which is fucking amazing. And don't don't try to sugarcoat everything. And But anyway, we had a game plan that if we didn't get on that list, What do we do? Because two people a day ain't going to make this work. We had to maybe concept change. And uh, like, there was a lot of money on the line. I mean, I I sunk every dime I had into this place. And we weren't making money. We were bleeding it. We were looking at a plan of what what we would do if we didn't get on the list. But we did. And then every day we were full. And they walked through that line. And then the protest ended a week and a half later. Because they honestly, straight up, man, they almost won. And I didn't ever let them look like they almost did. I was always like, "What the hell are you doing here, man? You're wasting time. You know, you want to talk about the neighbors? Let's talk about how we do this together. How do we work together? How do we? How do? No, 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 But in the back of my mind, I knew that we didn't have long to live if we didn't if we didn't get past this. And Enroute was like a light switch, man. And it was a full year. It's in every so. Enroute is run by Air Canada. The list goes out to everyone. Also, in every single Air Canada for the whole year, you're in that front seat that everyone wants to read something interesting on a plane. Yeah, the en route effect is real. It it, it literally saved this restaurant. And then it's also like, how do you transition thereafter where you've gone from like something that's quite curated and is used to this pace of a restaurant to being a absolutely fucking jam-packed restaurant? And how do you still maintain those standards? That was a complicated year. And I lost a year to the day of that almost, I think it was 11 months later is when I lost Makoto and quite a large bit of my crew, uh, because we were too busy and that was complicated. And, um, and also the neighborhood, I think that was a big aspect of why some people wanted out of the restaurant at that time. And so how do we, how do you create a restaurant that is still amazing while you're trying to make money, which is also fucking weird. You know, actually trying to turn a profit in this industry is is difficult when wages are so difficult and all that stuff. So every single year that we 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 look like we've had a banner year, it just gets sunk back into people and getting call like the, the cost of living in Vancouver has skyrocketed so quickly, so fast that every time every year that we look like we're like oh yeah yeah made some money, we're just like ah, we need to raise salaries, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to invest in this, and then it's like oh we broke even again. Yes. <laughs> and every restaurant knows exactly what I'm talking about, because you know that there's things that you could do better for your people at any point in time. And we try to, at every opportunity do that and it's complicated and it's expensive and it's hard. So, yeah.
0: How hard was it to find the next chef after Makoto left? Uh, how hard was it to, to find? Cause you, it's a pretty unique concept. I mean, Still, at the time, it was, you know, it's French, but Asian influence, but it, it's not Asian fusion either. Like, it's not this cookie cutter thing that you can just find somebody and be like, oh, yeah, I can do that.
1: No, uh, Shin was, Shin was great. And I'd known Shin for, for a while. And I was really, that was, that was not that hard. I, I had to, it was a little bit hard. I mean, I, I was being interviewed by Shin's wife, mostly. It's hardcore. Nicholas, awesome. And uh, but the hard part was is actually to to be honest what what ended up really happening was I had um, I had a crew that uh, had given really I had a sous chef Dan McGee who now runs O uh, Comtois kind of like a French bistro which is fucking amazing and a really nice guy had given me notice way back way back uh, we're talking like uh, my team we had like a, a collapse of what I would say was September 2014. I think. And um, he had given notice, I think, in like February that he had this project. He was excited about this, what he was going to do. And he gave us a huge amount of time. Uh, the whole team actually was, was his team in a lot of ways. Like Makoto had come in from Hong Kong. So uh, Dan, as a sous chef, had brought in a bunch of people to make this all work. And I was like, look to Makoto. And I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm pretty sure everybody's going to go with Dan. And they've worked together for years. And I'm like, we need to get prepped. And I'm not throwing Makoto under the bus on this at all. So I just preface that with that. But I saw the writing on the wall. And uh, yeah, it just turned into a really complicated thing where we had a lot of people leaving all at the same time. And then Makoto, I think he was in many ways, just it was just tough and it was an overwhelming time. And I think everyone was just tired. We also played really hard here too at that time. I think we had that young kind of, let's rip it up until two o'clock and pop back uh, Jaeger bombs at uh, the local pub after we closed and fucking come back and do it again at 7 o'clock in the morning. Like, just stupid shit. And a lot more maturity now.
0: When's the last time you did a Jaeger bomb?
1: Oh, fuck. Uh, Probably back then, uh, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Like, 2014, I'd like to say, was the last time I did that. Um, Maybe there's a few that have snuck in at the wrong times where it's like, that's a good idea. But anyway, uh, we lost everybody pretty much all at the same time. I had to build a team in two weeks because Makoto was like, I'll get you through this. And I am giving notice, but I'll get you through it until you find all the people that you need. And it was like, okay, are we doing this together? Like, cause it was always a front house, back house distinction, right? Like I'm, we're very different now and everyone is very family and tight. But back then it was like, Makoto was very clear. This is my jam. This is my side. Don't touch my side. You deal with your side, front house, back house kind of stuff which is, is, you know, philosophically is stuff that I've really tried to change over the years and, and I think is more healthy for a good restaurant. But at that point, I was also new, right? Like, you got to think about it from that perspective was don't touch my side, don't, and now you've got yours. So so he didn't want me involved on, on the hiring side, but when it looked like, holy shit, we're not going to find anybody, Makoto gave notice as well, lined it up with everybody else's and I was fucked. And so I went on this, I put together the most ragtag group of, People to to throw this together, and um, I had Mikey Robbins come in for a little bit. He had just uh, uh, come off a stint and was looking at opening his own restaurant. Now owns uh, there there and Alina, which are both uh, very successful. He came in for like two months to just document. I was like, dude, I need help. Uh, let's just get everything sorted. Into man, it was like I went old school. I was like, give me recipe cards, give me this, give me this, give me this. Let's just let's just get this shit together so that I can transition a huge amount of people and knowledge that we've been building over the year and a half. And I'd always been quite strong about keeping the syllabi up to date and doing things that are organized well. Yeah, it was it was, it was was a tough transition. So I put together this crazy team. Uh, Shin was amazingly talented. Some of the flavors and profiles that he put together and the way that he used ingredients is some of the best I've ever seen. We did a uh, pigeon reunion dinner uh, a while ago where we had like Dan McGee and Makoto come back and uh, and Shin and, and then I'll work with Wes and we did a dinner and, and Shin's dish was just a simple, amazing thing that was like three ingredients, but perfect. Stole the show. I can't remember exactly what it was. And Shin tried his best. It was It was a tough time. It was a really tough time. I put him in a a really difficult situation and remember going back and talking about what are the qualities that are necessary to be a, a a good chef and how cooking is like a little part of it. Big aspect of it is all these other skills that, um, are hard to ask from one person. And Shin, like I said, was probably one of the most talented chefs I've ever seen, but it was hard on the, the other sides and, um, administrative and, uh, leadership wise and stuff like that. It was just, it was complicated. I am incredibly indebted to Shin because he saved my ass. Did some amazing things while he was here. Very lucky, very lucky. So that, but that transition was, was the hardest this restaurant ever had. And it was one of those things too, where when you talk about chef driven and owned and and never interviewing anybody that wasn't kind of chef driven, it was, it was interesting is that transition to me, this was Makoto's place in my eyes. You know, I opened this because we met and it was like, holy shit. All right, let's 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 blow shit out in Vancouver. Let's make this amazing. Let's drop you into Vancouver from Hong Kong and like kill it. We weren't it was interesting. So we, it was supposed to be Makoto, it wasn't pigeon. And then it was a protest. And then it was like now Makoto's farm Okay, are you the protest restaurant? Are you pigeon? Are you a chef driven place? Are you now Shin? And I got to this weird existential crisis about trying to make all those things marry in a weird way. That was really complicated. Um, and then I was like, fuck this, it's pigeon. And this is what we stand for. And there's a lot of things that are philosophical around that and ethics-based. Certainly food keeps an overarching theme, but it was the double down on pigeon and not, um, not going directly into just one person. It is a, a, a bit of a philosophy. It's a language right? And so that's where that shift happened, and for good or ill, I always jump back and forth because I feel like Wes should be one of the most underrated people, chefs in North America right now, and is an amazing leader and uh, deserves all the accolades in the world. And I still don't understand why we don't get them. So many people that come into the restaurant go, "I don't get this—that you guys aren't on this or on this." And there's certain things, certain people that get it. And fully and then there's a, a lot that don't so and i wonder whether or not that's the, the, my approach to pr my approach to putting pigeon in front versus versus west I, i'm always back and forth and, and quite conflicted actually
0: shin's there for about like two years is he still cooking now i mean he winds up leaving about like two years after you know his stint is he cook i couldn't find anything if he was still he's uh he's like a ghost
1: he's a ghost He's always been a ghost. That's what's kind of amazing about Shin. Uh, Shin's in Victoria. Uh, I forget where he's working, but, you know, last week, Eddie, seems really happy and it seems like he's found some balance. And that's the other side. Places like this are hard to find balance um, because it's pretty all-encompassing and, you know, he has a a young kid now too. And um, finding that balance with the family in our industry is, you know, really tough.
0: How did you wind up connecting
1: with Wesley? Wes, I knew... Not personally that well at that point. I uh, knew him by reputation. He had worked with Wildebeest uh, for a while, which was just up the street from us. Everyone always had amazing things to say about him. Uh, he was doing some catering out in the interior. He had gone away from Wildebeest at that point, And it looked like he was taking a break, maybe to open his own place or just a break. You know, I had a friend reach out. We sat down, talked about it. And to be honest with you, man, we just kind of clicked. And we clicked to this day. Um, I really love him. It's like family has been, you know, has really solidified a lot of the philosophies of you know how we look at treating people in in a restaurant, how we treat employees, how we how we work with people, how we mentor people to make them better, uh, how we fill in the gaps of where our weaknesses are. You know, Wes has gaps, I have gaps, and we always try to fill those with people that are stronger than us in those gaps. He is honestly, he's one of the most underrated chefs in all of North America I love him and he's a, an amazing guy and um, we've been now together I think for four and a half years something like that yeah I can't imagine the restaurant without him it's everything like it's it is you know you go to that pigeon is it pigeon is it Wes is it or is it chef is it is it this it's like I think it's just all those things now it's a combination of me and Wes in this restaurant uh, and what it stands for it's uh, it's gotten pretty pretty amazing and that's it took us a year to stabilize after that again. Uh, to kind of come into our own. And and now, straight up, I mean, we were doing all the things that we wanted to do, uh, all the things that we had kind of been planning for as uh, COVID, before COVID. And we had this, we had like four months of just killing it, like just absolutely ram, putting out some of the best food we've ever put out, amazing pairings and everything just clicking and then fucking COVID just had to transition in a bunch of different ways. And now trying to pick up that momentum, I think it'll be complicated, but uh, we're in it now. So,
0: Has it felt like, like looking back on it from now, going back to the opening, does it feel like you've basically opened a restaurant? Like this will be your fifth time opening a restaurant. Like every time you had a different chef, like then it feels like a new restaurant. You had the protest thing, which probably like this now COVID, it's like, this is basically the fifth time you're going to be opening a restaurant essentially. And it's the same one, different every time, but-
1: yeah. And, and the, you know, the hardest thing, people always say, why don't you have more restaurants and, and why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z or like break off and do this small thing here? And it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I have opened five restaurants. In many ways, that's what it feels like. Um, and then I got mired in things as well. I got mired in politics for quite some time as a result of this. and And that took a lot of energy away from the restaurant. Yeah, it feels like that for sure.
0: So COVID happens, everything kind of shuts down. You guys, I think, are just getting over maybe your second or third lockdown and be able to reopen. You guys went in uh, this recent stint. I think it was middle of March because it was just after I talked to Hector Laguna from The Botanist. It was like a week later. Uh, they pulled like indoor dining. You wind up coming up with this idea for the delivery platform. And to just kind of give people it's it's only in Canada. It's called From Two, but there's there's no transaction fees, no markup of the prices. No percentage of gross amount taken off the order or anything only costs are basically delivery and the credit card transaction fees the easiest way to kind of describe it is probably communism well i was going to say like the delivery version you're doing what to the the food delivery industry what talk here in the u.s did almost kind of like to the reservations What sparked the idea? Was it just we had to start doing delivery and you looked at everything and you're like, what the fuck are these people charging me right now? Or or how did
1: that kind of come about? That was kind of the thing. I mean, January, late January, we started to see I started seeing uh, a lot of things like just the the fear starting first kind of like xenophobic style shit, like whereby um, I was seeing my my favorite uh, dim sum places and you know, hole in the wall Chinese place places uh, starting to empty out, you know, having revenue, you know, I've, I have my local what, that I take my family to before service every day on on Saturday uh, for dim sum. It was like, you know, full every single time you walked in to 70%, 80% or 60%. And then by the end, and we got to know each other, they figured out at some point, they're like, you own a restaurant, right? And I was like, yeah. And, uh, and then we became pretty tight at that point. They looked like they weren't going to make it. And this was late January, early February. This is before shit really got sideways. So I started to put together a weird plan of you know, just looking at cases, you know, trying to use some kind of math or something to justify actions. And I said, at this caseload, this is what we're gonna do. At this caseload, this is what we're gonna do, and, and we get prepped and prepped and organized. And I started looking at third-party delivery, which we've never even thought of in the context of a pigeon ever in the history of time uh, prior to this package products. Hard enough just to get to service, let alone um, adding on complexity of these things. And uh, so I started looking at the third party and looking at the contracts. And I was like, oh, my God, I hope this doesn't have to happen. Um, that I And I signed them all and, and negotiated before everything, before everybody tried to sign up. I'm like, I'm going to get this done. Organized, signed, and then we'll say we're ready to go live. At this point, in the future, maybe in my in the future, actually, in my mind, I was like, I never want to turn these things on. Uh, March fourteenth, basically, all of all of Vancouver decided to shut itself down, and then five days later, uh, the province shut us down. So it was actually an industry, somewhat of an industry decision, because we saw our dining rooms empty out. Right, like I mean. That week leading up to that, the fear was in, our rooms were empty. And so we just said, rather than sitting here and bleeding, we're all going to shut for a bit and figure this out. We were really well organized. So leading up to that point, we had this case count kind of set up where it's like, okay, let's start doing some menu development. Let's look at how things travel. What are the things that travel the best on our existing menu? How do we augment that to make a meal? What does this look like? And so we were like, bang, 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 15th, everybody shut down. 14th we shut down 15th we opened with takeout and delivery we were i think one of the first in vancouver that just went like this and especially in our class of restaurant like not like places where you would already get takeout like we were just like turn on the lights this is how we switch and it was it was really well organized i think and and then we get into it and it's like i'm i'm a couple weeks into this and i'm like holy shit this is expensive everything's sideways I put out a a weird post and I just basically say, hey, what does everyone think about, you know, some kind of co-op system around uh, delivery? And, you know, got a a lot of people kind of chiming in. And then uh, I started doing some work and spiking it out, going back to my uh, programming days. And then, um, you know, got a little bit of momentum, started chatting with a buddy of mine that's like a a team lead at uh, Amazon. I was like, dude, I think we should talk. Like, we need to start architecting this shit right now. Let's get to work. He was like, "Hey, Brandon, hey, Brandon, why don't you get a phone line first? Why don't you start there? Go old school and answer the fucking phone and write it down, and then get in a car and deliver the food." I was like, hmm, "Novel idea, Amazon programming dude." He's like, "Yeah, just figure it out. You know, get agile with it and figure out the 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 right way of you know doing what's necessary as uh, the pain points present themselves." And so we started that way. So I think it was like early April. Um, so we closed down March 15th or something, or 16th, one of the two, 14th. April, we started doing delivery at a house call in, boom, shitty website, you know, here's how you order. I think at a couple other restaurants that were kind of beta in with us and that same thing where we'd replicate the POS system and uh, do the Moneris kind of terminals and send it across, or sorry, the uh, merchant terminals rather. And then we just... You know, kind of started that way, started spiking, realizing I was going to be working for probably a year before we had anything close to a full-fledged automatic system. Made some partnerships um, with two companies, one in e-com and and one in logistics. Smushed them all together and created From2. And then we started automated delivery. I think our first order all the way through automated end-to-end was uh, May 4th, 2020. So we just had like our one-year anniversary. We started out with six restaurants locally, like right next to Pigeon, basically, like a bunch that are kind of in a cluster from a logistics ease of use perspective, because many of those orders, I would say probably the first six months, not six months, but probably the first five months, I was 75% of the drives. There was times on like a Friday night where I'm actually, you know, don't give me a ticket now, but I was dispatching from my phone while driving a delivery, talking to a couple other drivers and... You got to get over there. And then I remember the days where it was like the record was like fourteen deliveries on a on a Friday, and it was just like, holy shit, how are we going to do this? This is impossible. And I had my wife come down and drive for us. And you know, slowly but surely, we built up a driver base, and we have some great people that work with us. We're at like four hundred and fifty drivers now. We're at sixty something restaurants. We have two hundred and fifty restaurants in the backlog. This latest uh, lockdown. My whole pigeon team transitioned to a to an onboarding team to help restaurants kind of fill in their menus and you know help with that transition because when when we got locked down again there was a lot of people that weren't ready for it again and helping them with transitioning and uh, yeah we've helped out a huge amount it's uh, it's pretty cool it's hard managing both I'm I'm in the moment of fear right now trying to manage a restaurant and uh, transition from two as well it's or transition a restaurant and manage from two it's it's complicated as hell
0: will eventually from to just be kind of like a annual like subscription for restaurants so it ha- can stay profitable enough to to where it can keep operating or is it always just going to be like a essentially like a nonprofit platform where any money it makes will so just go back into it
1: we're in for quite a bit of money to be honest with you so we're looking at ways in which i, I see it as a pos system so pos system that gives delivery at near free Um, So when the pandemic slows down and restaurants recover a little bit, but we're looking at charging like five and a half, maybe 8% at most, which is where we can see a break even on that transaction. But we've actually, while we've been doing this, we built a POS system. And so the idea being is merge a POS system with the delivery system. And we could find a way to make it that we just take basis points rather than percentage points on transactions and be able to build something pretty cool and local out of Vancouver and, You know, we're going to try and make it really solid here and then we'll look at other markets. But yeah, we're raising money in from two and uh, to to try and make this work. And it's funny that you mentioned talk because we talked to talk talk in uh, April about being their delivery provider. We weren't ready, like April last year, we weren't ready, obviously. And they've now been bought by a square, I believe. So we weren't ready to, to do that yet. But now we're, we're looking at a bunch of different ways that we can have logistical services that offset the cost of giving it away, the delivery side for so cheap. So it's cool. Like there's there's cool opportunities on what we're going to do with From2. And I'm ridiculously excited. It's uh, From2.ca is going to be um, uh, well beyond the pandemic and Grow in a different way and try to make it so that, you know, I'm just done with these other companies. It's just, it's just God awful and predatory and concentration of wealth and inequality and all the things that are just fucked or wrong about our societies. It just needs to go away. And I want to break them in Vancouver. I want to break their asses and get them the fuck out of here. I don't think that's going to happen for years, but I certainly want to make a significant impact against them and what they've done. And I think it's, it's the antithesis of everything I stand for. So. And we can do it where we can not be predatory and, and live in a symbiotic relationship with restaurants first. You know, I want to go eat at this restaurant. I don't want to eat at the taco place. You know what I mean? Where it's like, I want that brand to still be represented and just augments your brand rather than taking it over. It's bullshit. You don't own your customer anymore. We give the ability in from 2 to actually like communicate with your customer. They're not mine. They're yours. We just, things get from A to B. And rather than just turning people into a widget inside of a gigantic machine, we do this to try and make it so that they still have that connection and are still part of that that transaction. So it's a different philosophy. And, and you know, we have a lot of people in Vancouver in a very conscious city, I think, that really understands the importance of keeping up your neighbors and holding up, making the right decision around purchasing. And that's how we, that's how we change things. So I'm looking forward to, it. I think we've, we've got a, a really cool year out of us.
0: Yeah. I know you have a giant wait list. I think I read that, you know, you're actively working on a, a the user app aspect of it. And then I think also kind of like probably Toronto is like the next logical, like expansion with it being so big, but any chance that it ever becomes from
1: 2. us at all? I would love to. You can talk to the from 2com dot com guy that wanted to sell it to me for like quarter million dollars when it was just an idea in April. I, I should revisit that now. Um, I would love to go down to the States. I do think uh, many of those reasons and issues and things that have come out of the pandemic are, are obviously some of the things that have happened down there during COVID. It's just amazing uh, how restaurants have survived. You know, we had the ability to do some things here and, and we had limited capacity indoor dining. But and and government support, you guys got pittance, and it's amazing that that you know some of these some of these restaurant tours actually survive. So my hats off to a lot of the people in 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 the U.S. You guys are pretty inspiring in what's happened. But the the exact same problems in delivery exist down there, and obviously the U.S. is a much bigger market than Canada, and we'd love to be there. I just want to be smart about doing growth that is actually uh, sustainable, building a sustainable system. Is complicated when you're trying to do it ethically and intelligently without selling out to Silicon Valley. Now, if Silicon Valley's listening, I would love your money. And I think the dramatic effects that you've had on our global economy could be rectified by potentially investing in From2.
0: Has it dawned on you that From2 is as profitable? as all the other delivery? Because like, people don't realize they don't make any money.
1: <laughs> well, this is, that's, that's my point exactly when I joke about the Silicon Valley side of things is, is there's, there's an end game that I just don't quite understand. You know, it's like at some point I'm going to do an IPO of a company that we've invested $20 billion into and to date over the last six years has lost $19 billion. And then we're going to do an IPO and say, hey, 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 We know this has lost all of its money. But what we're going to do is give you shares that you're going to pay us for in this company that has never turned a fucking profit. How the fuck is that sustainable? This is always just about user acquisition. It's about owning that user. It has nothing to do with actually building an economy that actually makes sense for people on the ground where a restaurant can actually thrive and the delivery company can actually do well. Like riddle me that, like what the fuck business ever in the history of time, basically its whole modus operandi is to fucking Dracula the fuck out of this restaurant to non-existence and then go and everybody wants to buy its stock and it still doesn't make money. So what we've done in the way of this huge financings of companies like this is that This is what we call a parasitic relationship where this entity sucks this thing dry until it does not exist. It's not even a successful virus. A successful virus can kill it just to the point of death, maybe, and just kind of suck a little bit of blood here and there. This motherfucker just goes right for your jugular and says, I'm going to suck you dry to the point that you don't exist. And then someone's going to go and say, I want to give you all this money in an IPO so that I can fucking pay you for all your stupid work that you've done for the last 10 years in fucking up the global fucking economy and destroying restaurants what the fuck anyway sorry yes
0: no i mean i i i still don't i don't get you know i'm sure it has something way above my level to do with you know data harvesting or something like that more so but i, I don't i don't get it but you see you know from two seems like not just you know the best version of it but also out of the people that have attempted, you know, food delivery, it definitely, from my understanding of everything that goes on in food delivery and everything, definitely seems like the one that has, that would be the most successful. I mean, numerous people have tried it. They've tried different things with, you know, David Chang, most notably, you know, even in just like New York, they tried to do just one little section of Manhattan and tried to, and it still didn't work. So
1: it's really fucking hard. Like it's actually like. I look at logistics. So now as a result of this, I'm a bit of a math background and all these things that I've done with programming over the years. And, you know, we used to deal with, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of transactions per second. And now when I look at this issue, logistics is so complicated. Getting something from A to B physically is a really complicated business. Getting it there on time and perfect with food. It is the most complicated thing that there is like, you know, If I'm doing a heart transplant and having to take this and move it and put it into a case and get that, I have more leeway time than I do with a fucking plate of carbonara that somebody thinks is a good idea to order because it travels so well. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I need that cacio e pepe. It's going to be delicious. And it's like that, making that thing happen where if you're late by a couple minutes on picking up. Now, it could be the restaurants behind, it could be you behind, it could be a bunch of different things, but it matters. Like I look at it always as when I see something sitting on my pass from a dine-in perspective, and it's sitting on that pass more than like five seconds, we fucked up. We made a mistake. That dish is not perfect for that guest. Now, imagine you've got to drive it 15 minutes, and it's got to be perfect in transit to get to that person. It is the most complex logistics problem on the fucking planet. Now, what we've been able to do is actually make that work with a series of a lot of lot of wonderful development. So you have to actually know what you're doing, low margin, understand the industry, build a lot, and then have a network of drivers that care about it the way that you do, which is important as well, because there's a lot of drivers that just don't give a shit and will drive around with your, your food for like 45 minutes while they pick up other food and drop it off to somebody else and your stuff's still in the back. Our drivers actually seem to care about what we're doing and care about the sustainability of the industry. So I look at that and that's the most complicated thing ever. And I can see why people fail. Like I've had people come in wanting to help with us or, or starting to do it, or maybe use this as a white label. And I'm like, okay, it's, it's hard because you have three people involved in this equation that is really, really complicated, not just programmatically, but logistically, physically, so what, what's neat about when I talk about how do we make this work long term and, and keep the cost low is I have 400 drivers on the, na- on the road and I'm doing the most complicated thing with those 400 drivers. Imagine if I just went and did delivery from someone's hair salon or some retail product of a local independent where they don't have to get it there in like 20 seconds, you know what I mean? Or 20 minutes. That's how I see from two actually really working is that, is that we're handling the most complex logistical problem of hot food, being from A to B as quick as possible. Imagine if I just had a non-perishable product that I wanted to deliver. I can do that in this system. So that's kind of where we're going. And then I can augment the costs on the, on the restaurant side, which the margins are so slim. So we could be doing last leg logistics or last mile logistics for a bunch of different companies. So that's how we see the next phase of this, is lighting up all those drivers to do things when they're idle. And making it so that you know the long-term transition potentially out of the gig economy as well. So it, there's some great things that I see coming out of this. It's just you know we're taking on companies that do have literally tens of billions in financing. We actually are making a dent, which is kind of cool as well.
0: Probably can't talk too much about this just because with TV shows and stuff, usually contestants and whatnot have to sign and DAs and stuff like that. But, but like, what was it like when you learned that that Kim? was going on Top Chef Canada?
1: There is amazing. Uh, Kim is uh, a, a, a very special human. There has represented us amazingly well in Top Chef. And it's no surprise to me at all. We've worked together for, I think we're coming up on two, two years. There deserves everything. Kim's going to be incredibly successful. Just for us to be a small part of that in that journey to be a part of Kim's career is, um, you know, we're lucky and blessed.
0: Talented people always move on and wind up doing their own thing, own restaurant or whatever. Have you thought at all about trying to do something with Kim where it's time to, to spread their wings?
1: Yeah, and that's it's such a tough time. That's the hard part. I, I think there's opportunity, but I think that's probably going to be Kim's. And I'm not sure uh, whether or not we'll be lucky enough to be a, be a part of that. Time will tell. Things are starting to transition now here where, like I said, we're, we're opening again, you know, and also I've got to figure out this weird uh, balancing act of, of from two and pigeon, but I'd love to be a part of Kim's future, whatever it means. And and if it does mean that we're not a part of it, I know that Kim's going to be successful. So
0: since opening pigeon has the Vancouver restaurant scene changed, has it changed enough? Would you say Hmm. since you guys opened?
1: I guess i pretty, I mean, it's an interesting place. People always say Vancouver is the hardest restaurant market in North America because we're actually a pretty small town. There's a lot of creative, intelligent, amazing people doing really cool stuff here, but it's a small town, relatively speaking. It is an expensive town, like an incredibly expensive town. And so rents are difficult as well. The pressure on your diner as well from disposable income and what they can afford to actually go out and eat is complicated too. So there's budget consciousness in this. We have amazing ingredients, man. There's so many cool ingredients that come in here. Great fishermen, uh, obviously a lot of local people that are doing amazing produce and, uh, and proteins. I I think the scene right now, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I'm sure this happened in the U S but everyone's fucking gun shy, right? Nobody wants to go out and do crazy shit. You know, we had like places that are, uh, you know, in many eyes of people, some of the best places in Vancouver, you know, slapping out fucking meatloaf and burgers and shit. Make, who wants another fucking hot chicken sandwich? I got one. Hey, hold on. I got one. Oh, I got one. It's like there was a week there where it was like, what the fuck is going on? There's like, it's the week of sandwiches. And that's what happened during COVID, right? So it'll be interesting to see how it slaps back and whether or not it comes with um, like how people bounce out of this and whether or not they they go they go hard again. I think we were doing some amazing things uh leading up to covid. I just wonder whether or not the momentum's been pulled out a little bit and you know if people just need to make money. I can only speak for myself and what we're doing here but we're fucking going for it. Behind me I have like fucking 20 cases of new really fucking cool wine and sake. You know, we've been using this time to to basically do R and D on what our we want our now spring because this will be the first bit of opening on Monday for us, uh, what our spring opening looks like, and we're not we're not playing anything safe. It's we're gonna we're going after it, and we're gonna push really hard, and we're gonna charge appropriately for what things cost, none of the subsidization bullshit. It's been a really fucking tough year, and I think restaurants need to start really looking at what things cost from a product perspective and how to pay people correctly in this industry, in order to do those things, we're not going to be cheap. People need to understand what it takes to make things. So we're not backing down. We're we're kind of doubling down actually. And I want to pick up that momentum of exactly where we were last March, where that last month was the busiest month we ever had in Pigeon since the beginning of time. I want to jump right back into where we were because it really seemed like the creativity of, where we were hitting and the team that we had and the products that were coming in and the just everything was just fucking perfect. So I want to be right back at that point. The last couple of weeks, as we've been ramping up to get ready for this, I feel like we're going to jump right back in.
0: I asked Jamie modest and Vancouver has such a big Asian population, you know, down here in the States we've had, you know, different incidents of various kind of Asian hate issues, if you will, and Asian hate movement and everything. Has anything like that occurred there too as well? Or is it because, you know, Vancouver does have such a sizable Asian population where it's a little bit more, I don't want to say insulated from that
1: stuff, but. I would like to think so, you know, and that's, that's, to be honest with you, that's what people always, always say that we are is a, this wonderful. And I've even said it at one point, I'm like Vancouver feels like it's getting towards a the star Trekky type of society of everything, wonderful tolerance of everyone. And, and community and everyone understanding, uh, Vancouver now has the distinction of having the most anti-Asian inc- incidences per capita in all of North America. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, yeah, huge Asian population. A lot of everyone, like, honestly, like like my team, uh, like it's uh, my wife. Like, it, 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 you walk around downtown Vancouver and it's it, it's just everyone is... It seems like it's perfect. It's just not. Hate is everywhere. And even though you know we're Canada and everything seems like it should be amazing, and Vancouver looks like that super diverse population and that everything is great. No fuck, hate. Hate is everywhere, and it's just a lot of stupid, closed minded people. Um, the incidences that I've had with my wife over the years, and I can never fully understand how that feels for her. But fuck, it's awful. It's just. It, it happens and we are not exempt because we have such a high percentage of population of Asians. Uh, it is, hate is everywhere and people are fucking awful. I wish I could come on here and go, no, Vancouver is awesome. What are you talking about? All that shit happening there? Oh, well, that's over there. That's in that awful place and where you're, no, it, it, hate exists everywhere and it's unfortunate, but it's it's here as well. You know, I've been in some hardcore fucking throwdowns because someone dropping the wrong word around my wife. And I will say that generally speaking, Vancouver, like proper is different than like, I think it's just like anywhere you, you go downtown versus you get 30 minutes in the wrong direction and start to smell some beautiful, one wonderful country air. Things change really quick because people's exposure and understanding and empathy and just humanness uh, evaporates because they're who they are. Yeah. We're not exempt. I gotta ask why boxing? (laughs) Cause do you still
0: box amateur or did your wife make you stop doing that?
1: No. So I, I, boxed, I boxed when I was a kid. So, uh, when I, so I left Vancouver in grade four and, uh, moved out to Ontario, a small town in Ontario, uh, called Amherstburg. Can literally looked at Detroit all the time, right by the water, like Detroit river, basically. When I first got there, I was, I got picked on constantly. I was living with my step-grandmother at the time. Uh, well, she raised me most of the time, actually my step-grandma. And we were poor and lived in a fucking trailer park and all the fucking tropes. Anyway, I got the shit kicked out of me uh, constantly. It was grade four. I was just like getting beaten up day after day after day after day. After day. Uh, she put me into boxing. And, uh, and then I fought one time after that, got kicked out of the school. And then I fought once with the biggest guy in the school when I got to my new school. And that was the last time I fought until I think grade 11. Prison rules to find the biggest guy. In the- <laughs> Yeah, kind of. So fucking find that motherfucker. Is, is, you know what's funny? So I think that was so grade four and then grade five was at this other school. His name was Goliath. He was fucking huge in grade five, okay? And then I saw him as we grew up. Everyone just caught up to Goliath. I forget his name, David. It wasn't David. That would be just fucking stupid. But, and he was like, honestly, the most gentle. And we got to you know there after that, nicest guy ever. But I remember just... Or maybe I remember a different grade five. I don't know. But it was one of those things where I learned how to defend myself. I fought out of a boxing club in Amherstburg. It was a great club. Uh gave me discipline and you know, obviously self-defense and shit like that. But also more than anything, just like a great amount of discipline. Also just getting to know some amazing people during that time. It was really cool. And then so I I boxed until I came home or came back to Vancouver uh, when I was sixteen and uh, was reunited with my mom for a bit, and then lived on my own. And then that's when I kind of started working at Earls. And then when I started uh, programming, I started training again, and then teaching a little bit at a gym. Eight years of of pigeon, I got so out of shape, and now I'm back. And COVID kind of knocked me back again. Um, you can see it in the face with a little bit of jowls there, called the beer jowls. Yeah, we have this thing called Aprons for Gloves in Vancouver, which has a gym in the downtown east side that helps a bunch of youth. And, and it was many of the things that I kind of uh, loved about my club. Like the, I never paid dues or anything like that. We went and we fought all over the place. We fought in, um, fought in New York. We fought in Toronto. We fought all throughout Ontario, Quebec. And it was really cool. It was amazing. And so this gym was kind of like that here in the downtown east side where we do this Aprons for Gloves every year. It's a huge fundraiser. Uh, which is just basically a bunch of industry hospitality people go in and beat the shit out of each other and some of varying levels of skill. And then we raise a bunch of money for uh, after school programs, uh, food programs, you know, everything. And uh, it's really quite cool and a great thing. So got into the shape for that. Uh, had a fight, one very close fight. Some people would say it might not have been my win, but those people are stupid. And I uh, had a great fight with a very good friend of mine as well, who also who taught at that gym. Yeah, I love to throw down. I mean, you know, shit happens in this neighborhood sometimes. And uh, it's nice to know that you can still throw a punch. Usually I kick, though. As I get older, I realize that breaking hands is stupid as shit. I like to teat someone right in the chest. And then they just fly back and they're like, what the fuck just happened? It's, and it doesn't hurt them that much. It just shocks them. So I'm a big fan of kicking people in the chest.
0: So we got a few more questions. We ask these to everybody, but I do have one more unique one for you since you are are kind of a finance background. Cryptocurrency,
1: you in or you're out? I still consult every once in a while. I got involved in something a while ago to help build um, a crypto farm. For me, in a place like most of Canada, where the electricity is all hydroelectric, I think cryptocurrency is kind of cool. I think blockchain is interesting. It's a it's a democratization of a few things. That's really quite cool. I think the electricity usage at one point in you know in China during like in the Mongolian kind of desert region there, they were firing up coal plants to do mining like one a day to be able to keep up with the mining that was happening. So the Bitcoin mining, et cetera. So I think it's an environmental disaster in some ways. But I think what people don't get and this is what frustrates me about this industry, is there is a fucking reason for the SEC and there is a reason for a separation of like church and states of these things. So you have a regulatory body, you have an exchange where people trade, you have a depository, and then you have a brokerage firm. And there is a reason all these things are broken up so that the consumer doesn't know the fuck is going on like as in generally, I want to buy the Dogecoin because fucking Elon Musk said I should buy Doge or Doge Dodge. I don't fucking care. So I should buy this. And it's like the reason that all these things are separate is to keep this person safe and to understand that they are, if they are being taken advantage of by one of these, that these people will get punished. Problem that we have with with all of these all of these coins right now is that the way that they are exchanging. So the exchanges, that they, they do this, are all of these things in one. Now, do you think that they have their best interest in mind in trading this or they're going to rape and pillage? And sometimes that coin doesn't even fucking exist. And then when you go to pull out your money, you go, well, I lost my key. OK, there's that. OK, yeah, you lost your billions because you fucking left your hard drive and, you know, and your mom threw it out with your comic books. That did happen to a guy, actually. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's happened to lots of guys. I know lots of guys lost a USB drive or something like that. It's like, you know, there's safes for shit like that. But anyway, and there's also like hard drives that are considered safes for that. But anyway, this if that exchange and all these things are happening inside of that same entity, you are going to get robbed blind at some point. And it is in some ways a little bit of a pyramid scheme. Now, until regulation comes in and breaks up some of these things, which is the antithesis of coins, it is the antithesis of, the, of basically creating a sub-economy off of digital currency. Until those things break up and there's some form of regulation, this shit's wrong. And I think it's, it's a bit of a waste of money and time. And also not to say that it's also an environmental disaster of spewing a huge amount of money uh, doing mining. Because to mine something, you are literally cracking a firewall for lack of just you know, let's go laymans, you're cracking a firewall to be able to create a part of that of that chain. And you are spending an inordinate amount of computing power to do that. and that inordinate amount of computing power is coming from an electrical grid and depending on where that grid gets its electricity from, is destroying the environment. You know, going to the Elon Musk thing, if that guy was saying that about Tesla stock constantly of what he says in cryptocurrency, he would be in jail 20 times over. And then also the other side, I agree with what he said about, about mining. It is, it is weird and, and, and awful from a, how much electricity it consumes. So I'm not, I'm not a big, I'm not a huge fan. I've, I've, I've got coins. I had coins from way back in the day. Um, I don't know where they are. Um, I got a little bit. I've done a little bit of mining. I've done a little bit of consulting on blockchain. Uh, I've built some chains. I think it's underlying cool technology. I think there's just there's better ways to institute. Ethereum is interesting. They've done some really cool things from a how it is used for everything, which I think is a lot more diverse and interesting than a lot of them. But yeah, we'll see what happens. I'm probably wrong. I think a digital currency at some point in time actually makes a lot of sense. I'm just saying that the way that we're doing it right now is probably not the right approach.
0: Eight more questions for you. Ask these to everybody so the listener kind of gets a compare and contrast across all the episode. And sometimes they're tweaked depending on if Chef or Somalia or whatever. But who would you say is the biggest influence on your restaurant ownership career thus far?
1: Probably say that that's, you know, there's a bit of uh, David Chang there. There was some inspiring things that came out of uh, the early days of Momofuku. So I would say that's a big part of it. Uh, The Joe Beef guys, who we met a couple times pre-opening. I think those, you know, and also seeing how different styles of leadership that have changed out of both of those voices over the years has been refreshing, relatively speaking, uh, where they they want kitchen culture to change. And that philosophy has kind of always been my philosophy here. Um, But it's nice to be seeing that with people with a much bigger microphone than mine. Uh, So I would say those are probably the two biggest influences. And then a a lot of it just comes out of, from the restaurant perspective, just comes out of the wonderful things that Vancouver has and the bounty of it. And, you know, the million chefs that have done amazing things in this city.
0: What's the one thing in the restaurant that if it breaks, you're calling someone to fix and not doing it yourself?
1: The backflow preventer. (laughs) Number one backflow preventer. Do you guys have? I assume you guys have backflow preventers in the U.S., right?
0: I mean, I have no idea. I would imagine so. Probably. I don't know.
1: Stops the water from going back into the water supply.
0: I would think, but uh, who knows? It it could be one of those. I mean, we are you know the country that had a an oil rig drilling out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico and was just like, we don't really need that safety feature. Came back and (laughs) bit us in the ass. So
1: that's a good point.
0: Yeah. What restaurant would you recommend to somebody that isn't your own? So the scenario I usually give is, uh, you know, flying through Vancouver airport, flight gets delayed, you know, they reach out to you, you guys are closed that day. Where are you telling them to go?
1: Uh, I would say ugly dumpling, small chef-driven place, tight, tight wine and sake list. For a long time, one dude in the kitchen making soba from scratch, which is a labor of love. I would say... Mackenzie Rooms doing some amazing stuff, and Dosenko. Those are those are some highlights right now.
0: Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place that you want to go, haven't been to, but like when you do get to eventually take some time off from the restaurant at some point in the future, where's that place that you want to go?
1: Um, I want to go to Egypt again. That's kind of my my biggest place as far as bucket list travel, but it's not really a culinary destination.
0: Well, it could be different it doesn't have to all be in the same one so
1: I'd like to go to Monofuku in 2000 <laughs> is it loose enough for time travel uh, not that loose no I'm just joking um, I, I don't know that's a fucking tough question it shouldn't be but it is can we edit that back in <laughs>
0: Sushi restaurant, or is there some you know, famous Michelin restaurant that you want to go to? Or
1: Michelin for me is not really the jam, but hey Cam. Yeah. If there was a Michelin that you had to eat at anywhere in the world, where would it be? <laughs> so many places love. Just hit me. One. I'm blanking. See? I'm blanking. I'm blanking too, which is actually kind of bothering me all right not even michelin number one where would you go bucket list restaurant bucket list <laughs> bucket list which one oh, gets aloe in toronto yeah. all right fine aloe i mean that's a solid answer like that's not you know actually no fuck this you know what bucket list would be actually rolling through all of um all of the restaurants on on uh, mcmillan over the course of a night
0: oh okay the montreal and all that stuff yeah
1: yeah, and just like going from place to place. My GM did that a little while ago where he started, I forget which one he started at, but they paired him through restaurants. And I was just like, fuck, that's fantastic. It'd be pretty cool. So he did a course and a course and a drink, course and a drink, course and a drink. And I think then the last place was like fucking everything, I like the idea. Sorry, I blanked out pretty hard on that. My apologies.
0: Craziest thing you've seen happen in your restaurant.
1: Uh, the day before doing a collab with, um, like, street chaos or inside chaos.
0: Um, we'll go with inside chaos because normally I ask people like, you know, what's when they're working. So, so yeah, we'll go inside chaos.
1: The worst one, worst one was a was a. Well, I've seen some weird stuff with celebrities, but I don't wanna, I don't wanna out any celebrities because that's some fucked up shit I've seen there. I've seen, like ugh. Oof. The uh, the weirdest one was I was doing a uh, you know park restaurant that closed a couple of years ago in Oregon he was one of the first farm to table guys back in the day well not first but early early days in Oregon uh, we were doing a, a collab with them here in Pigeon somebody had braised a bunch of pork but let it overfill overnight and we came in in the morning somebody then let all the grease go and we had a one of the largest grease fires I've ever fucking seen in my life. We were doing the collab that night. We were doing the dinner that night. And I remember, ah, well, I've got another weird one too, but I'll leave that one alone. That's like a mustard gas story. Um, I won't die putting a fuck. Anyway, we looked at each other and it was me and the, uh, the guy. We looked at each other and we're like, do we let this burn out on its own and just close it? And we're going to burn out everything inside the stove, all the regulators and all that stuff. Or do we fucking go for this and open this and fucking spray the shit out of this with the fire extinguisher so we don't have to make 50 phone calls to people today, later, that the place is not going to be ready to go for this dinner. And we kind of looked at each other. He's like, I'll spray you open. He's like, on three. (laughs) We're lying on the ground. And he's kind of, he's grabbing the door with one arm and a fucking hook and pulling down. And then I'm just like fucking in there giving her. And it was, um, it was the worst grease fire I've ever seen. It was like, it should have just went out with the seal, but it it was going to melt everything. And so we just, we had to go for it. So, or we weren't doing the, we weren't doing service that day. And we had other people hold a blanket or not blanket. I forget what it was, but it was like, so that we didn't fire. Um, we didn't get extinguisher shit everywhere. And yeah, it was a nightmare, but there was one where I actually had chemicals melt down in the dishwasher. And was if it had melted, it melted my dishwasher, it melted plastic and a bit of steel. And if it had got in and actually got down to where the bleach was, it would have created mustard gas. And that was cool. That happened once. Like the combination of chemicals were done wrong. The restaurant was evacuated. We closed for like three days to go through. Oh, it's fucking insane. Anyway, yeah, that happened.
0: And then last question, uh, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, and not everybody is. If you were, is there a, a moment, a scene, uh, something that stands out to you about him the most? Or if you weren't, is there a culinary personality that you gravitated towards and, and was kind of influential in, uh, throughout your food career?
1: Uh, I met I met Bourdain very briefly when he was doing a, a tour here, just before we opened Pigeon. And I was like a, uh, like a giddy fucking cool, like, you know, just the the epitome of a cheesy fan, like going like, can you sign my book? Yeah. So that was pretty cool. In fact, um, and it's just one of those things where you talk about like philosophically, you know, how food can really change the way we think about travel and the way that we think about humanity and how it breaking bread is just such a such a thing that crosses all cultures and, and crosses humanity and creates more in common than differences. And I think Bourdain fucking nailed that. The whole fucking, everything that he touched nailed that. You know, obviously sad. You know, I think a lot of the people that are in our industry have a lot of issues around trauma and uh, and some dark-ass moments. You know, I think there was a lot of awareness that came out of that. But uh, anyway, yeah, Bourdain, everything, really. Just the overarching theme of what he uh, what he stood for.
0: Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug, everything.
1: Yeah. Uh, Pigeon's pretty easy. Uh, spelled P-I-D-G-I-N. So Pigeon Restaurant. If you are in North America, it'll come to ours. If you're in Europe, it will go to Europe. So go pigeonyvr.com for the, for the website. Our Instagram is pigeonyvr. I think Facebook is like pigeon Vancouver. One of those fucked up things we didn't do right at the beginning. I'm found on, I don't do much on the, on Twitter, uh, but I can be found on Instagram. at uh, b gross city G R O S S U T T I. And from two is a lot easier from to.ca found on Instagram and online as well. So yeah, that's me.
0: Awesome. Well, I know I kind of went over our time, but I couldn't help myself. So uh, apologies, but thank you so much for doing this. I mean, it, Remains one of my favorite restaurants uh, to this day. Can't wait to come back once things kind of open up. I talk about it probably too much, but I definitely want to do like a like a Vancouver, Seattle, like Portland, like the Pacific Northwest trip. Just like four days in each city. That's like my next like kind of you know, dream vacation or dream you know trip or something. So once everything kind of opens back up, hopefully we'll be able to make that happen and be back at Pigeon. But an open invitation to anybody who comes on the podcast if they want to come back on and just chat about food or or whatever too i will probably be hitting you up sometime in the future just to hear more fishing stories because those are just awesome so
1: we'll we'll try and get wes on here i can make him do this i think it's possible it's just going to be setting it up it'll take a little bit of time
0: but appreciate it so much wish you guys the best with the reopening uh i hope you guys get back to the level that you were and and hopefully, eventually, uh, Canada's 100 best for some reason does, has decided not to put you guys on the list. I don't really understand why. Hopefully, they will because I think you guys are super. You know, it's super deserving of being on that list. And I remember, you know, first time I saw that list, looking through it, and I'm like, "Why is Pigeon not on here?" I was like, "What's going on?" So if you wind up in Vancouver, make sure you go. Must visit. I mean, there's so many great restaurants, but you know, I can't recommend Pigeon enough. If you if you need anything from me or or anything, just don't hesitate to reach out. Can't thank you enough for, for doing this and taking the time.
1: No problem, Ray. It was my pleasure. It was fun.
0: Thanks again to Brandon and the entire Pigeon team coming on the podcast, getting that set up. Thanks to Kim for making a random appearance while they were in the kitchen, trying to help Brandon with some answers to some of the questions. Hopefully we'll be able to get Kim on the podcast sometime in the future and uh, Wesley too. And, and everybody else, you know, kind of involved with the restaurant. It's one of our favorites. You know, it's one of my personal favorites. It's just an amazing experience I had there. Can't wait to go back. Can't wait to go back to Vancouver. It's an amazing food city, but make sure you follow them on Instagram. Be Grissetti. On Instagram is Brandon's personal account. Pigeon YVR is the restaurant. From Two on Instagram. From 2.CA is the delivery app that he started. Kim's is Kim Cumming on Instagram. And Wesley is Chef Wesley 604 is his. So make sure you follow them on Instagram for all the updates for Pigeon. Front two's is pretty cool because as they add new restaurants to you kind of learn a bit about them. So that's definitely one I would, I would highly recommend following too. Even if you're not in Vancouver, you just kind of learn about new restaurants for whenever you might go there. Definitely go to Vancouver if you haven't been. It's an awesome food city. Check out Pigeon. Check out Botanist with Hector Laguna uh, over at the Fairmont. Maybe see if Jamie's working and uh, see if he's got a recommendation for a glass of wine or something too at the lounge. Appreciate everybody it's awesome to just talk to these people and different stories and everything. So a lot of fun doing it, plan on doing, you know, 26 was the plan for this year. I think we're definitely going to get there, probably go over it a little bit. So appreciate everybody listening. Hope you've enjoyed all these so far and what's to come. We got more Psalms, more chefs uh, scheduled to come on the podcast. Some episodes already recorded. So those will be coming out. So it's definitely been a lot of fun and appreciate everybody who, who take some time out of their day to, especially their off days, usually it's, you know, scheduled on their off day and it's, you know, taking an hour or two out to talk is, um, you know, they don't have to do that. And and I appreciate everybody who does, you know, just because they work long hours, most days of the week. So uh, when you get an off day, it's not exactly something that you maybe want to do, you know, initially or something, even though it's an exciting opportunity. So definitely appreciative of everybody who's taking some time and and chatted with me over a video uh, recording. So uh, can't thank those people enough, but make sure to check out all the past episodes of Chefs and Guests. Starts with episode number 80 with Jay Clevin. He was the first one. The guinea pig just actually remastered that episode. So that audio quality is a bit up to date. So if you haven't listened to that, check that out. Restaurant Review Podcast on Mondays. And Parts Now Known, the Anthony Bourdain rewatch series that we do comes out on Wednesdays. And make sure to give those a listen, but subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Hit the subscribe or follow button. We're on all the major platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, Audible, Pocket Cast, Spreaker, Breaker, all that stuff. The only one we're not on is Pandora. So if for some reason you can't find us on whatever platform that you use, shoot me a note. I will look into it, but I just went through everything the other day and everything is up to date and good to go. So should be able to find us on whatever player that you use or, or anything like that. Yeah, make sure to follow the Instagram account too as well, at Spoon Mob on Instagram. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. And uh, we got a lot more stuff in the works, a lot more stuff on the way. So hopefully you've been enjoying it. And if you're new to kind of the podcast or what we're doing, check out some of the past episodes. Like I said, start with chefs and guests and kind of work your way through there. Appreciate everybody. Awesome episode. We will talk to you guys next week.